The opportunity came up for me to, to go undercover. Uh, we got a tip of young girls potentially being sold. And it was bizarre because you would think that that information alone would be enough to mobilize law enforcement. But that really isn't how it works. This is Until All Are Free, a podcast by the Exodus Road. I'm Preston Goff. You've discovered our debut episode, the very first one. If you're not familiar with our organization, the Exodus Road is a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking across the globe. We gather intelligence, empower nationals, and facilitate rescue missions alongside local law enforcement as we fight to end human trafficking around the world. The Exodus Road was founded in 2011, and to date, we've celebrated over 1,375 rescues and 688 trafficker arrests. The goal of this podcast is to educate you, our listeners, with an understanding of the systemic issues of human trafficking. You can expect conversations with our founders and other experts, incredible stories of rescue, and interviews with the ordinary people, operatives, who bring extraordinary justice through the work of the Exodus Road. This debut episode is a From the Founders episode. You'll hear the genesis story of the Exodus Road from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Matt Parker. A quick listener note, part of this story has descriptions of abuse that may be triggering for victims and survivors of violence. There are also some words that we've left unbeat. Okay, here's the story. Before my wife and family and I moved to Thailand, I was living in Colorado, and I was a youth pastor in this really small town. And I'd been doing youth work for about a decade, actually, Um, not all in Colorado, but I was in Colorado for about five years working with the community and, and students. But I had gotten to this point in my career and a lot of youth workers and those who work with, with students, they kind of get to this point where they just felt, and I felt like uh, this desire to, to do something else. Um, because I drug these students all around the world serving the poor in various countries, I had this growing passion for the global poor. And I really wanted to do something with my life that, that took me back overseas. Uh, my wife and I out of college lived overseas and I fell in love with other cultures and I fell in love um, being in those environments and helping people. At the end of the day, I just love helping people and I wanted to do that in an international environment, specifically helping the poor. Um, so I'd really kind of come to these, this crossroads in my career where I was looking for about a year, for what the next thing you know would be. And then this opportunity randomly uh, comes to me to run a children's home in Northern Thailand. And that really, it felt right. Um, you know, when you're at those crossroads and you're trying to, to decide where to take your family, uh, to lead them and to provide for them, but also fulfill this deep desire to do good in the world this opportunity was that in my mind. It's kind of the thing that I had been waiting for for almost a year. Arriving in Thailand with three small kids and a beautiful wife with 
just full of hope. You know, I feel like the first couple days we were in this romantic period of great, amazing food, Thai food, and uh, everything's new. Um, but very, very quickly, <laughs> you realize that you, you, you have no command of the Thai language. You don't really know where anything is. Um, and as much as they may speak English in, a, in the city center, you start getting into the rural communities and there's almost no English. And so just doing daily life uh, was incredibly challenging for us as a family, um, let alone trying to you know, run a nonprofit organization and be a leader for people who don't speak English. Uh, just really challenging. And, and I, I suppose we could sum it up as culture shock. There were so many times in that first six months uh, because where I was working, it was, it was really poorly managed before. And so we, I, I remember I got two letters from the government threatening prison sentence for myself as the leader just because somebody didn't register the well properly. I mean, and I didn't realize at the time that, that those types of letters are very common and, you know, it's an empty threat. But, you know, to me, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, there was, there was things we uncovered while trying to, to just re, reintegrate ourselves as a family into a foreign culture and run you know, a nonprofit organization. There was things we uncovered that just really created an overwhelming sense of stress. Those first six months, it just felt like I had made an overwhelming mistake. When we first moved to Thailand, I really didn't know anything about human trafficking. That wasn't kind of our mission. That wasn't what we were doing. Um, but we'd made some friends uh, eventually and, uh, you know, who were working to fight human trafficking. And we didn't know much about it, but we started to learn from our friends. And they would tell us about kind of a common problem in that part of Thailand was uh, brokers or johns, men in the community, uh, specifically the major cities, would go north to the border uh, where there's villages, old refugee camps turned into villages, and they would recruit young girls uh, and traffic them. And, and I'm, I'm like, well, how do they do that? Well, they promise them jobs. They promise them money. And these families that they would recruit these girls from, these were really impoverished people groups, really poor farming communities, not a lot of education. They don't have cell phones or at least not iPhones or, or MacBooks or any of that, no technology. These really remote places. And these Johns would go and promise this employment. And the mom and dad would be really excited about that. These farming moms and dads are like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be great for my daughter, my son. Please, you know, take them and give them a good job. And, um, as the story went, these girls would then get in the vehicles with the trafficker. They'd get to the city of wherever the destination was, and then they would find out, you know, there's no job here. Actually, you're gonna be sold into prostitution. And so we heard that from our friends, and it brought this kind of overwhelming sense of responsibility to me, because I was running a children's home with 48 girls in it. And they were all from these northern villages. And so it just, 
in my mind, I started to, to grow concerned as to what was happening in those communities, but also how that may have touched or be, be close to some of the stories of the girls that we had. And so I got into a truck with my assistant director, who was a Lisu man, spoke Lisu in English, and we drove to the border. And the goal was to enter, to, to figure out if that was true. You know, I was just curious. And, and so we would interview these village leaders and ask them, you know, lots of questions about their community and what they felt their needs were, really trying to have this holistic approach to supporting an impoverished community. But one of the questions was, you know, tell me about this rumor. You know, I keep hearing that the guys will come to your village and recruit girls for employment. Does that, is that a thing? Does that really happen? Uh, and it was, we were in Changdao, kind of on the border of Burma, Myanmar. And we interviewed four, I think it was four or five villages. And each of the village leaders said, absolutely, that happens all the time. In fact, we have a saying in our village. There are no pretty girls in the villages. And so we met with law enforcement and they invited us to kind of be their consultants and do research for a year to do a project and learn about human trafficking in Southeast Asia and the border areas, the, you know, kind of the crossing points for traffickers, you know, how the mechanisms work, what police were doing, what they weren't doing, what was working, what wasn't working and why it wasn't working. And so I spent a year with just a few nonprofit organizations doing that research um, and I remember there was this day, about a year into this thing, you know, we had really mapped out uh, about eight different key steps in the process of freedom. We call it the process of freedom now, from, you know, victim identification to an intelligence gathering, evidence gathering, to a rescue or a raid operation, uh, placement of a girl into aftercare, delivery of the case to the judiciary, and then repatriation, reintegration. There's all these steps towards total freedom where you're back home with mom and dad or in a safe environment. But there's about four di different government agencies that have to be involved. And the thing that we were learning is there was corruption in each, at each level, at each gate to the different phase of a case. There's, there's hurdles of corruption. Uh, evidence gathering was a big hurdle just uh, that seemed like a lot of these cases of human trafficking were unsuccessful. Uh, girls disappeared. Uh, they, were, they were lost. How do you lose a girl out of the Department of Social Welfare? Well, somebody's buying that girl back out and it's all corruption. But we were learning all those things. I was traveling around and, you know, interviewing other nonprofits who were working the streets, who had some experience. But there was this moment, it was, it was so, clear, we, we just looked up at the table as we were doing this research, no one's looking for victims of human trafficking. Everybody's talking about victims of human trafficking, but nonprofits aren't because they're trusting law enforcement to do it. Law enforcement's largely corrupt. They're underfunded, understaffed, undertrained. No one's, no one's really looking for them. The opportunity came up for me to, 
to go undercover. Uh, we got a tip of young girls potentially being sold. And it was bizarre because you would think that that information alone would be enough to mobilize law enforcement. Hey, there's information from the community that little kids might, might be trafficked. But that really isn't how it works. They, it costs money to mobilize law enforcement and they really wanna have pretty solid evidence um, because most of the law enforcement's overwhelmed with cases already. They don't wanna waste time. And so it really kind of came back to me to say, look, Matt, can you find somebody to go undercover, pretend to be a John and just verify the information? That's what we need. And if you can do that, then we're good to go. We'll, we'll deploy, we'll do the case. My first reaction was, well, that, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy that's doing research. I'm not the guy, you know, we'll have to find that guy, whoever that is or girl. Um, and so I made a lot of phone calls trying to find that person. You know, all of the connections I'd made over a year, you know, we need somebody, uh, ideally a foreigner, to go undercover, verify. That, that's it. Go have a beer, verify, come back. Well, and, and I just couldn't find anybody to go. Nobody would go. And they wouldn't go for all the reasons you would think that they wouldn't go. My wife won't let me go. You know, I'm a missionary. My faith community won't, they would never be okay with this. <laughs> Um, or it's too dangerous. And, and I understood all of those, you know, hesitations. I understood those boundaries that people had put in their life, but I found myself growing increasingly frustrated with every call I'd make. Because what we were talking about was little girls as young as eight or nine, potentially being raped for profit 10 times a day. And somehow we couldn't figure out, you know, overcoming these boundaries that people had to then go and do a simple thing that could lead to the freedom of a child. And there was this, this wall that just seemed impenetrable and it, was, it just created this anxiety in me. And eventually, um, you know, I had a couple of my close friends finally call me back and they're like, yeah, we'll do this, but we want you to come as well. And it was, it was kind of that, that thing that I hadn't considered. And we were still pretty new in Thailand and, my tie wasn't very strong and, and still going through culture shock and I wasn't in a great place. And I remember going to my wife and I'm like, babe, listen, I have never, I was raised quite conservative. I'd never been to a strip club before. Um, I think the worst I'd ever done was, I had gone to Hooters once and I felt really guilty about it. But I, I was like, babe, I think, I'm, I, I think I need to go, but I want you to send me because I don't wanna go see things that are gonna harm our marriage. I need you to be okay with what I'm about to go do. And I, I, I think I knew what had gone on in brothels and we talked about that. We call that exposure. I was exposed to things that for my whole life I was told to avoid, <laughs> you know? But again, on the other end of these kind of moral and ethical conversations was, was a child. And that seemed to trump everything else as far as a value system goes. You know, it's her life, it's her freedom, not worth the struggle of having to overcome something in our marriage or, or in my own mind, in my own heart. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, I was really nervous. I was really afraid of the idea of it, getting on a plane and then going to pretend to be something I'm not for the sake of, of a hopeful freedom for someone. 
When we actually went down this red light district, first one, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was Bangkok's oldest and largest red light district. And uh, it was just such an overwhelming experience. And, and it's located off a major highway. And then you kind of turn down this alley and it's like the whole world changes. You go from kind of mass humanity and a lot of traffic to uh, just debauchery, <laughs> you know. Uh, you have those neon lights and, and sensory overload. People are pulling on you. There's people coming up to you, showing you pornography, trying to sell sexual positions. And they act as if all this is just so normal, so, so okay. And it was so opposite of what my moral compass had ever taken me before, <laughs> you know. Um, but I had this moment that was quite transcendent for me, that first experience. Um, you know, despite what was going on circumstantially all around me, where you've got girls for sale, boys for sale, women and men for sale, drugs are for sale, uh, everything illicit you can imagine is kind of happening all around you, pornography, child pornography, it's all happening. Brothels are lining the streets and there's these black curtains and you just have this sense that behind that curtain is something even worse, you know? So you're feeling this for the first time as, as a father and as a husband. Um, and I had this moment, it became too much for me. It was, it was so overwhelming. I, I just had this kind of flight sensation, like I gotta get out of here. This is not safe, it's not, not good. But I had this moment for me in my own, my own life where I just felt very intensely the truth that I am the only man, me and my, my other two friends, we were the only men on that street that wasn't there to purchase young girls. We were there to free them. And somehow that made us incredibly dangerous. That we were going into, we were light in a dark place. We were willing to go in and do all that can be done to mobilize law enforcement to free somebody. And somehow that street changed for me. And all the players on that street changed. You know, you get tugged on a lot and they, they can't call you because you're a customer, they're trying to sell. And I just remember shifting from trying to like get my arm back <laughs> uh, and, and avoid people touching me to just embracing them, putting my arm around them and, and just loving them in a way that, that I can't quite explain except I had found a purpose. So we went to the target location, a particular brothel on that street where we gotten the intelligence from. We entered in and there's girls lined up on a stage and they're all wearing these, these numbers on their chest. And you know, we're all quite new to this at the moment. So we're asking the brothel owner and the trafficker questions. You know, why are they wearing numbers? And it's like, and he told, tells us, well, because they don't speak English. And all you need to do is choose the number of the girl you wanna have sex with. And you can take them upstairs for an hour, it's $45. You can do whatever you want to with them. Uh, you don't have to be able to speak to them. You know, they, they, they don't understand you anyway. And I think there was something about that. You know, we talk about human trafficking that it's, we, we, we turn people into a commodity. They, those girls were commodities. They were, they were, canned goods on a shelf and you could pick whichever one you wanted. 
the thing that became so obvious to me is that this red light district, while trying to appear to be sexual and sell sex, it was slavery. And it was the easiest thing to notice. These girls on these stages, they looked sad. Their, their faces were blank. Their spirits were broken. And you can't hide that. You could tell occasionally they'd really work hard at trying to hide that. But a blind man could see these girls do not want to have sex with that guy. No way, no chance. So we had the opportunity in that first case to sit with some girls, the girls that looked to be the youngest. We held their hands and they leaned their heads on our shoulders as we would talk to them. But it wasn't sexual. It was like my daughter was leaning her head on my shoulder. And I got to speak to this girl named Belle. I think she was probably 16, maybe 17 years old, but she had a number on her chest. And, and I asked her about her story. You know, how did you, how did you get this job? This is a weird job. How'd you get this job? And she tells me she was tricked. It was the same story that I'd heard up in the villages that somebody had come to my family and offered me a job doing like massage work or, or working in a restaurant. But when I got here, they told me that I owed them a debt for transport and lodging and that there was no job. I'd have to, I'd have to dance and go with customers. And I, I was like, well, why can't you just leave? She's like, they won't let me leave. I have no idea how to get home. These girls and boys are highly coached and trained and threatened on what they can say to clients and what they should never say or they'll suffer. And if they don't sleep with around 10 men a day, then there'll be interest added to their quota of what they must accomplish to pay off their debt. And most of these girls struggle, just like all women do with their own insecurities. They don't like their nose or their breasts are too small. They think that they're ugly. And here's the juxtaposition I can't ever really overcome. When I am undercover, secretly pretending to be a John to get evidence for their freedom, and I have to choose out of 15, 20 women, who are on stage trying to dance provocatively, most of the time not very well, because they don't want to be doing it. What must it be like for her? Because in her heart, I would assume there's two things that are intention. Will you choose me, please? I'm trying to pay off my debt and get home. And please don't, please don't choose me. I just can't imagine that form of slavery. And I can only imagine what her mom and dad must be thinking, like back in the village. Do they know where she's at? They were lied to. They'd put her in that trafficker's car with hope for a better future for their kid. And like, that's a great thing to do as a parent. We do that all the time. We send our kids off to, to school or to a job opportunity and that's what they'd done. But then if they ever did find out, as a father, I had sent my daughter not off to a better future, but I had doomed her 
to rape and slavery. It's too overwhelming for me. (laughs) But when I went back and I sat with my wife and, you know, our kids are playing in this stream and I'm I'm telling her what I saw, this world I, I really didn't know existed. And we were broken that this thing actually happens off of a main highway. (laughs) In broad daylight, this is happening. This isn't hidden by any stretch. It's not hidden, but it is protected. How do we fight that? You know, after that first experience going undercover uh, with my friends in Bangkok, we go back home and we're, we deliver what we call a target package, a field report to law enforcement of everything we saw, what we learned, how much girls cost, can you take them off site, is there restricted movement, what's exploitation like? We, we put all that down in writing, we gave it to police and, and law enforcement, they were just overwhelmed. They were like, Matt, we, we're not allowed into these places. They won't let us in without a warrant because we're Thai and they suspect we work with police, but they would never suspect that you work for us. This is great. We've never had this information before. So they were really happy about it. Uh, I'm, I'm fully disrupted in my spirit. And so I go to have coffee with my wife to, to kind of share with her the details. And we're talking through what we learned. And, and I just remember talking about Belle, the first the girl that I sat with. And um, I remember saying to my wife, babe, listen, I, this wasn't actually all that difficult. Yes, there was exposure to things I'd rather not have seen and there's risk, I'm pretending to be a John, but you know, there's like a hundred other guys a night that are in that same brothel and, and I look just like them. Um, what do you think, Laura? If, if we do this more. I think we kind of need to do this. Because remember, I'd served for a year on that research committee and the thing that no one was doing was looking for victims of trafficking. It's exactly what I'd just done and I'm, as hard as it was, we did it. And it felt valuable. Law enforcement were excited about it. And Laura looked at me and said, yeah, we have to do this. I agree. You know, just because my wife thought it was an okay idea, uh, I still kind of had to, to ask law enforcement if that's something they wanted. And I really felt in my mind like silly. And it was probably that record playing in the back of my mind that I'll, I'll never be enough and I'm really not that valuable. And so I walked into uh, the Sergeant Colonel's office that I'd really befriended. We'd worked together for about a year and I just said, listen, uh, you know, would it be helpful if I did this more? If I went undercover more in search of children? Is that, and in the back of my mind, you know, I had already heard him tell me, you're crazy, you're not a cop, there's no way. I don't need you, I've got other people. But he looked at me in the eyes and he said something that, that literally changed the course of my life. He said, Matt, everybody loves to talk about human trafficking, but no one wants to do what you just asked me. 
He says, I have no help. I would love your help. So he deputized me into the Thai Royal Police. And uh, I started carrying in my shoe some piece of paper in Thai that I couldn't read. A get out of jail card, I suppose. And I started to canvas the city and map the city. Every dark corner, every piece of shit bar, I got to know it like the back of my hand, who was for sale, when and where and how. And I began to write field reports and deliver those to law enforcement. I would go out around 9 p.m. and stay out to four or five in the morning and I'd go to 10 to 12 brothels a night. I started to do cyber intelligence gathering. You know, a lot of pedophiles and traffickers, they love to boast about what they do online. It's crazy. <laughs> but they'll tell you where to go. So I started to go and I'd make notes and I'd map and I did that for several months. And then law enforcement said, Matt, this is amazing. We love this, but we really need to see what you see because Thai women are quite small. They all look young. And, you know, we'd love for you to wear body-worn covert gear, recording devices. You know, and up until this point, you know, even those first times of going undercover, not really knowing, what to do, except I, I wanted to get information. Um, that was hard enough. Wearing covert body-worn gear is something different because if you're found out with that, the stakes are higher. You know, the retribution against you could be more violent. Uh, so I asked law enforcement, okay, you know, I'll, I'll wear the gear. What, what do you got? Like, oh, well, we don't have any. <laughs> so I had to go on Amazon and buy my first covert piece of equipment and somebody donated it to us. and. Uh, we start building out a tactic uh, of how to do this. You know, how do you film covertly in these environments, which are normally low light, really loud. A lot of cameras can't handle that. But I think for Laura and I, it kept coming back down to this really simple equation. What if this were our kids? Would we not want good men and women to brave the darkness, to find the courage to, to embolden their moral compass enough that they could be exposed to the world the way it is, not the world we want it to be? Could we bring light in the darkest of corners for the sake of a child who's enslaved and cannot leave and is being abused every night? Can we love that person enough? And so we decided to start contracting some retired special forces people who were living in the community and started to pay them out of our own pocket. We didn't have any money. No one has money when they're young. And uh, we just started to contract this force and, and, and I would train them in everything I'd learned and, and they'd bring their military tactics as well. And we started to build out best practices. You know, how do you do this and never victimize the victim, protect the victim while still gathering the intel that you need. In the early days of movement for me as an undercover operative, um, I was called in on a particular case. Um, I got a tip from a, a partnering nonprofit who knew of a 15-year-old girl that was held against her will. So they called me in to go undercover and get information. And I just, there was something about this case. It was one of my first cases. Um, I don't know, I'd been doing this for a few months at the time. And, I had to fly to another city and, and I was preparing. I had my undercover gear, my covert gear. 
I was doing research on this target location and I, I just had this, this overwhelming sense of fear. And I remember going up to the rooftop of my hotel and looking over the city of Bangkok um, and really grappling with my fear. And I had this, sounds kind of silly saying it now, but I believed and I felt deeply that, that I was going to die that night. Which is, you know, it's weird because I had this choice whether to go or not, like I'm not a slave myself. I don't have to go into this brothel. I don't have to do this work. I've got my wife and three kids, you know, a couple hours north. You know, what's gonna happen to them if I die? And it just, it was this moment. It was really this powerful moment for me of facing the danger and the risks associated with the underworld and playing this part. And I just remember feeling this transcendent moment where I was impressed in my spirit that if I am to be the man and leave the legacy that I wanna leave for my kids, that my life may be required of me, that I, to compromise um, the value of freedom for a child uh, because it might cost me too much. That's really not the story I wanna live. And, and I just, I remember having to come to a decision that if, if tonight my life is required of me, then it will be. But I will not leave her in that brothel. So I fly to this particular town on the border of Malaysia and I'm going undercover with one of my operatives to this particular brothel that happened to be right next to a police station. And uh, we had built a rapport, my undercover operative that I was uh, paying at the time had built a rapport with the trafficker and they had back and forth on the phone for months. And finally he's like, hey, we got this new girl in. You know, I know you, you like young girls, why don't you come down? So we go in and we meet with the trafficker. And this particular brothel, you know, they, they line the girls up in front of you, they have numbers. Uh, it's an old Southeast Asian kind of method called a fishbowl where girls Girls are just lined up in front of you and um, you pick one. But he motioned to the security officer, his security guards in the back of the room. Um, and they opened a door and in walks this young 15 year old girl. And she wasn't dressed like all the other girls. The other girls were dressed, you know, like prostitutes dress, heavy makeup and high heels and all the things. And she was in street clothes, this girl. And they brought, they escorted her up and set her right in front of us. And um, she was Burmese and she didn't speak Thai and she didn't speak English. And, and the thing that I remember about it is noticeably straight away, she was, she was very uncomfortable. She was nervous. She was fidgeting with this napkin she had in her hand and she wasn't making eye contact. She was looking down. She'd fidget with this napkin and little pieces of this napkin were just falling to the floor. And the trafficker in Thai was making fun of her 
telling us things about her. And he had said, look, we sold her virginity two days ago, but she's available to you. You know, second time you can, you can take her. We ended up hiring her and taking her to a room. Of course, we have our covert gear running. And the undercover operative that, that was with me started to talk to her. And she pulled out uh, a bill. It was a Thai bot bill. And in her language, in Burmese, she wrote on this bill, because they didn't have anything to write on. She wrote, please rescue me. We didn't know it at the time, but what that did was sparked a two-month effort to get her home. We left her there. We went straight to law enforcement, delivered intelligence, covert footage of that inter interchange, and we mobilized a force. But on the way to get them, one of the cops was corrupt, called the brothel owner and said, hide those girls, we're coming. So she disappeared. Her name was Sarah, she disappeared. And I told my men, listen, we will pay. Station two men in that city until she comes back. Because what we know and what we knew is that when tip-offs happen, traffickers hide the girls, but eventually they'll put them back into play. They'll turn them back out onto the market. And we wanted to be there. And so we waited and we waited and a month went by and sure enough, they put Sarah back on the market. We mobilized another law enforcement team, a different one, and it was tipped a second time. Another corrupt cop, and they get bribes, these cops. They'll call the trafficker, they get, they get a payback. And I just felt one of our values at the Exodus Road must be stubbornness. We have to persevere because Sarah is 15. She was sold by her mom up in Burma, trafficked all the way down to the southernmost part of Thailand, held against her will. Another month goes by, Sarah's back on the market. And this time, we use a, another force, law enforcement, and we find her again and we rescue Sarah and all the girls that were at that brothel and we arrested those traffickers. And that was our first case in 2012, our first successful case. You know, and I think it's important to say, this was never about Matt Parker or Laura Parker, never, not once. We do not care about fame or our name. We care about victims of human trafficking, and that was what motivated us. And we, we, I'm an entrepreneur, I love business, and I wanted to build a machine. I didn't wanna just rescue one kid. That would be great. I wanted to rescue thousands of kids, and that's, there's no way an individual can do that. I wanted to build a machine that systematically identified victims of trafficking and then walked them through the process that we'd done research on and overcame corruption and cut through it to make sure that these, these kids actually made it to freedom and more importantly, that the traffickers were arrested. There's this mantra, it became so central to our work, we must make trafficking a dangerous thing to do. 
It's really not enough to just pull girls out because you're putting money in the hands of traffickers who will just go buy another girl. And we started to see other groups do that and their intentions were great. Let's buy this girl out and run with her. I understand that motivation, but that's also called kidnapping. That's also uh, not necessarily within her scope of desire. We don't know. And, and you really have to work with law enforcement to have this sense of impact systematically on what's happening. And that's difficult because most of, most of us who are parents, we just wanna run in there and grab that kid, wrap him in a towel and take him somewhere safe. But we work through the legal system for this idea of systemic change. It's gonna take a long time, but our cases are legal. We have the support of law enforcement. We work to support them. Um, and in that way, we're arresting traffickers who aren't just selling one girl, they're selling hundreds of girls. And every arrest that we make has a latent effect of hundreds of rescues we really don't report. We rescued just over four, about 1,500 kids around the world. But the impact of the 500 arrests of traffickers we've had is much greater than that. I don't know how to measure it, but we began to see this value not in replacing law enforcement agency. That's not what any nonprofit should do. We are supporting, augmenting their work, training them, giving them the technology to make their swords sharper. But it was never about Laura and I. It was about what can we build that will rescue kids while we sleep. We had law enforcement collaborate on that best practice document. We had something. And we started to deploy into the community. We started to map at a greater scale. We moved to other cities. We started to rescue kids. And then Laura and I looked at each other like, we have no money. <laughs> so we formed a nonprofit, we called it the Exodus Road. So today we have 55 staff around the world, uh, just over 40 investigators constantly looking for victims of human trafficking and we're winning. We've seen red light districts who, where you could easily find 12 year old kids, not have any kids anymore, they're afraid. They're not afraid of me and they're not afraid of my wife, Laura. They're not afraid of the Exodus Road. They're afraid of civil society that are, they're rising up. I hope that this founding story of the Exodus Road left you inspired and excited to share what you've learned about human trafficking with people in your home, workplace, and community. If you're ready to learn more about the Exodus Road, Visit us on our website at theexodusroad.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at our handle, at The Exodus Road. If you'd like to be the first to know when a new rescue takes place, you can subscribe to our rescue text by texting ER to 51555. Until All Are Free is a product of The Exodus Road, a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking around the globe. The podcast is hosted by me, Preston Goff, and produced by Isaac Lay. Our internal themes were produced and generously donated by Lucas Lay, and the intro and outro was generously donated by City of Sound. New episodes of Until All Are Free will be released soon, and you can expect compelling stories from the front lines of human trafficking rescues, conversations with people just like you who illustrate what it means to live as if justice is in the hands of the ordinary, interviews with our founders, Matt and Laura Parker, and representative stories inspired by the experiences of real survivors that the Exodus Road has rescued. You can subscribe to Until All Are Free wherever you get your podcasts 
and it helps us if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For when the sky falls, you can become. For when the sky falls.